0: Although the next Winter Olympics are still four years away, knock on wood, athletes around the world are already hard at work training for their next appearance on the world stage. At the Olympic level, the slightest change in performance can mean the difference of making it to the podium. While some athletes have taken to performing pre-event rituals or wearing lucky socks, new research suggests you should be more concerned with what you're swishing in your mouth. Open your ears and mind, and let's chat about that. Welcome to the GriffinCast, a podcast where we casually chat about science coming at the College of Biological Science at the University of Guelph and how that work can affect lives around the world. I'm your host, Michael Lim. With me today for a special dual guest episode is Dr. Lawrence Spreet and PhD student Danielle Nyman. We'll be chatting about their recent study looking at how male ice hockey players improve their on-ice performance by rinsing their mouths with some carbs. So welcome, Lawrence. Welcome, Danny.
1: Thank you. Thanks for Thank having you. us.
0: So, to introduce yourself, can you briefly describe what your research is about, or I guess what piques your interest when you're talking about human health and nutritional sciences?
2: Okay, well, I'll start. Um, I recently retired, but I've been uh, a professor in uh, human health and nutritional sciences for 36 years. And I guess uh, I've been very interested in things that you might consider to be lifestyle. So, movement, exercise, and nutrition. And for most of my career, I did a lot of work uh, studying or examining uh, the regulation of metabolism or how we take fuels and make energy, mainly in the skeletal muscles that allow us to move. Uh, another arm of my work has always been taking that information and trying to apply it to sport. And a lot of times elite sport, because clearly elite athletes have, uh, are pushing the limits in terms of what muscles can do, uh, the nutrition they require, and so forth. And that's really what kind of led to this this line of work that uh, Danielle did.
1: Yeah, and uh, pretty similar to Lawrence. Um, definitely haven't been at it for 36 years, but <laughs> um, I started volunteering with Lawrence's lab in the third year of my undergrad. And um, that really built on my fascination of just like how we can manipulate the human body to improve performance, whether that's like acute with like nutritional strategies, like we're going to talk about today, or more chronic exercise. Um, I'm really interested in how we can kind of push the limits of human performance. So that's how I got started. And then that spiraled into an MSc. And then now I'm doing my PhD in the field as well.
0: That's exciting. So for this particular study, working on I guess, hockey performance, was it like a joint? effort in deciding what you want to study and how you would study it or
1: yeah so i've always loved ice hockey like i grew up playing it and um how i started volunteering with lawrence's lab was his master's student came to our class to recruit hockey players for his study at the time but it required male triple a players and i'm neither of those things so i asked if i could volunteer um so that was a goaltender dehydration and thermoregulation study I really enjoyed that. And then I got involved myself with my fourth year project, which was actually an athlete monitoring project with the Griffin women's rugby team. So then my thesis research combined Mm -hmm. both those ideas where we were looking at some nutritional strategies in hockey, but I really wanted to bring in like that athlete monitoring component. So that's how I came up with this research idea. But Lawrence is the number one hockey guy around town. So that did have a big part of it. And I just so happen to really like it.
0: How about you, Lawrence? Yes, I guess it
2: goes back quite a ways, actually back to about 2005, because I was actually approached to start doing doing sweat testing, if you will, with uh, elite hockey players. Basically measuring how much uh, elite ice hockey players sweat and whether they do a good job of putting the the fluid back into their body. And um, over the last 10 or 15 years, I would say that uh, it's commonplace now for ice hockey players, whether they're elite or not, to be rehydrating on the bench all the time. And uh, whereas 15 years ago, when we tested half of the players would let themselves get more than 2% of their body mass lost during hockey. And and in most stop and go sports, if you lose 2% of your body mass, your performance starts to decrease. So we try to prevent that. But now when we test teams, sometimes none of them get near that. So I always joke with my students that we have worked ourselves out of a job because the, the maintenance of <laughs> hydration during ice hockey, you know, for the elites is pretty much there now. And the new challenge is um, trying to teach them about the value of carbohydrate because carbohydrate is really the primary fuel you use in a sport like hockey. So that's sort of how it evolved.
0: So speaking of kind of advancing the research and looking at how ice hockey players are hydrating themselves, you recently published a study titled, Carbohydrate Mouth Rinsing Improves Overtime Physical Performance in Male Ice Hockey Players During On-Ice Scrimmages. So to begin, for audience members, could you describe some of these terms like overtime and scrimmage, what they mean in terms of activity and the sport?
2: Sure. So I think most people realize that hockey is played over 20 minutes of stop time. Where the shifts are quite short but very intense uh in the national hockey league right now the overtime is time tacked on to the end of the game if if it's a tie they are using a version of overtime where it's three on three players not five on five and they play for five minutes and if they don't score then they have an actual shootout which is basically each team gets to take a penalty shot on the other team and at the end of three rounds or four rounds or however many it takes Whoever has the most goals wins the game. Uh, The other term that we use a lot in the paper is scrimmage. Basically, what scrimmage is, is sort of an unofficial game where you're playing against each other. And in the case of Danielle's study, mainly because of the COVID restrictions, we played three-on-three hockey. So it was simulating the NHL regular season overtime. And um, so that's why we didn't call it a game. We called it a scrimmage.
0: Uh, Okay. Do you have anything you want to add on to that, Danny? Danny?
1: I'm not sure if Lawrence mentioned, but um, hockey is unique in that overtime is a winner take all most commonly referred to as a sudden death format, where Mm. when you score, that's when the game ends. Um, So I know in certain sports, you either get extra time and even if a team scores, they'll continue to run that time out. Um, But in hockey, there is no second chance. And once you score that goal, the game's done and that team wins. So that's like why we put so much emphasis on the performance in overtime is it can really make a huge difference, not only on that one game, but in a playoff series or in a season, those overtime wins can really start to add up.
0: So you kind of touched on it a little bit, but depending on the flow of a game, obviously these ice hockey players when these short 15 to 20 minute rounds, essentially, are facing moments of high intensity activity. So, you know, rapidly accelerating, braking, grappling with each other, body contact. So... Although human bodies can use a variety of different types of energy sources like, say, fat, what makes carbohydrates so beneficial for these types of high-intensity activities?
2: Well, that's a great question. And uh, there's a couple key things about carbohydrate that people need to understand. And that is that you can mobilize carbohydrate and make energy from carbohydrate much, much quicker than you can from, let's say, fat or even protein. Um, The other big advantage of carbohydrate is essentially when we talk about making energy or adenosine triphosphate ATP there's really two ways you can do it you can do it by combining with oxygen and producing uh, ATP in the mitochondria of your cells and we refer to that as aerobic metabolism uh, or making energy with oxygen and that has quite a high capacity but it's a little bit it's a little bit slow to turn on it might take 30 to 60 seconds for you to reach where you wanna be when you start exercising. But the cool thing about carbohydrate is that you can also use it to make energy without oxygen or the so-called anaerobic metabolism. And we, we associate anaerobic metabolism by and large with the ability to make ballistic, quick, powerful movements or sprinting. So if I'm standing on the ice and I decide to start to skate as fast as I can, For the first few seconds, the majority of the energy will come from anaerobic metabolism because aerobic metabolism takes a bit of time to turn on. You know, the bottom line is uh, carbohydrate is your high intensity energy, whether you're working aerobically or anaerobically, or most commonly with a little bit of both.
0: So in your studies, background information introducing the kind of work that's been done previously, You mentioned that carbohydrate solutions have previously shown to improve performance and decrease fatigue in ice hockey players. So can you describe kind of what was the mindset when you started shifting between consuming the carbohydrate solutions versus just rinsing it in your mouth?
1: Yeah, um, I'll take this one, Lawrence. Sure. So the basis for my research was three previous studies from the SPREET lab. And like you mentioned, Michael, they, they did show improved performance. And that included things like uh, increased voluntary work, increased time at high effort, increased speed that we saw in ice hockey. But what was unique about these studies was that they had an ingestion condition that was a carbohydrate electrolyte solution. Most people know that as a sports drink. So the players would ingest that and hydrate with it. But in these studies, the second condition was actually a no fluid dehydration trial. So the participants were purposely left to mild dehydration, essentially. From the findings of those studies, it kind of left this gap of where the performance was coming from. There was a performance improvement with the CES, but we didn't know if the performance enhancement was due to actually hydration with the CES, whether it was ingestion of carbohydrate from that solution, whether it was oral exposure to that carbohydrate or whether it was some combination of these factors. So my research wanted to build on those studies and look at everybody being hydrated, Mm. and then just introduce one of those factors, which in this case was oral exposure to carbohydrate, and seeing if that had any effect on performance.
0: So in your study, uh, you used a specific brand of sports drink, name redacted for (laughs) the sake of being fair to all sports drinks out there, uh, for both the carbohydrate rents and the placebo rents with the placebo being a zero-calorie version. So do you think if we use a different sports drink or maybe a different flavor, for example, would there have been different results? And what about doing something, say, with just juice or like a simple syrup or a honey drink that also has carbs and sugar in it?
1: So in this study, we used our carbohydrate condition, which was a conventional sports drink, and then we also used a non-caloric version. And this was a placebo, so it looked the same and it tasted the exact same, And actually, I think it was out of 48 different questionnaires we had, only five participants were able to correctly identify whether they had the carbohydrate or the placebo condition. And I don't think we would see any different effects with a different sports drink. Purely, what's most important is actually the presence of carbohydrate, Mm -hmm. which I think we mentioned a little earlier. But that's what matters. It's not the sweet taste. So in those early studies, when they had participants mouth rinse, with something like sucralose, for example, which is the conventional non caloric sweetener used in the placebo sports drink, it doesn't have any effect um, similar to the carbohydrate condition on the brain. As long as the other sports drinks, other brands had carbohydrate, I wouldn't matter on the flavor, um, the sweetness, color consistency, most of that wouldn't matter. It was just the pure presence of the, the carbohydrate itself. That being said though, there is an ideal concentration for a sports drink Mm. and that's 6% carbohydrate. So I think if you wanted to take like uh, a separate approach and try and make your own sports drink, like you mentioned with like syrup or honey, again, it would have to be presence of that carbohydrate to have a positive impact. And then too, you would want to be careful of the quantity of carbohydrate you're putting in that fluid. As
0: we kind of hinted at throughout our discussion so far, your study reveals that players with carbohydrate rinses performed better during overtime in terms of factors like increased peak speed. Was there a particular variable that really stood out too that really highlighted, yes, rinsing is the way forward for increased performance?
2: I think for me, um, the ability to reach peak speed more often is really critical. I mean... The trouble with ice hockey, of course, is there's no one variable that's going to predict success right. other than goal scored. <laughs> okay. <Yep. laughs> but you know, it's it's a combination of different things. And I the fact that uh, they were able to reach peak speed more often and, and maintain it. And maybe secondly, the fact that they rated the exercise the same as they did in the non-carbohydrate trial even though in the carbohydrate trial, they were covering more distance and getting more work done. So they mm-hmm. were able to, if you will,
1: stay at it. Danny. Yeah, that was great. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I have to agree with Lawrence and something that I also found really cool from our results in overtime was that when you mouth rinse with carbohydrate, you had significantly increased distance at high intensity speed. So with our local positioning system, we were able to track speed in six different categories. So everything from like a very slow skate up into a sprint. The distance at high Tessie speed included those top two speed zones, which was about 80% and above of your speed. And seeing that in that 80% of your top speed, when you mouth with carbohydrate, you were able to skate a greater distance. And what was really neat about that in the overtime period was that the players only had three shifts in overtime, but we saw them skate up to, I believe it was 40 to 50 more beaters in that very high speed zone. So the fact that they were able to accumulate that much additional distance in a very short time span, that was impressive to me, especially in a game like ice hockey, where A lot of your performance and the gameplay depends on your ability to isolate yourself, get yourself room, give yourself more time. So the fact that the carbohydrate individuals were able to skate more, perhaps provide themselves with more space, that was a signal to me that this could be really beneficial in a real game setting.
2: Yeah and I think I think Michael one of the things that people wouldn't necessarily realize by reading the study is that the rating of perceived exertion scores were really high in other words they were very tired mm-hmm. and with us being on the ice with them and both Danielle and I playing hockey we know exactly you know how that feels and basically your body is saying all right that's enough let's slow down here let's let's pack it in type thing but I think the combination of the competition and just the right fueling makes a big difference in terms of what you're able to accomplish in the overtime
0: so would you say it's something like the people who are consuming or rather who did the carbohydrate rinses are less exhausted or they just feel like they're less exhausted
2: well it's probably the latter it's that regardless of the signals you're getting from your muscles that you know are associated with fatigue all of these things are feeding back to your brain and a lot of athletes say, I don't feel very perky. I feel lethargic. Uh, You know, it's really hard to push. I can't focus. So I think that's where it comes that you're kind of ignoring some of these peripheral signals. That's a big, big thing. And I think it's even more important in the elite field where every athlete is properly prepared. They're well-trained. They've got their nutrition to a peak. They're very competitive. So these are the types of small things that make a difference in a person's performance.
0: So we touched upon it a little bit, but in your study you you partially credit the importance of the development of wearable technology to do these kind of team player sports tests, like Bluetooth heart rate monitors. has been really important. How was this done previously if you wanted to study team sports? Or was it just not done? And do you expect more incorporation technology like this
1: in sports studies in the future? Lawrence, you were around before me, so. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> yes,
2: uh, uh, that's, yeah, that's a, a, a thinly veiled shot at how old I am. <laughs> so um, in, the, in the beginning, you know, most of these types of things were done by filming the games. Hmm. And if you wanted to, you wanted to know how fast the players were going, well, you needed a grid that you could apply over the playing surface, you know, with uh, the computer. And you had to digitize basically things, you know, every second or every whatever. And it was extremely painful. And we, uh, we, did, we did a study like that where we, we did all the digitizing, looking at how much, how much ice that they had skated and so forth. Um, the advent of GPS technology really pushed everything forward like crazy. So, and then all of a sudden, in the last few years, we've had this GPS technology be translated into indoor sports. So, we put 16 sensors around the arena, and they're picking up signals from a little sensor you're wearing on the back of your shoulder pads. So, we know where you are, how fast you were going, and how much area you covered. The really cool thing is it can uh, men, it can record number of contacts where you're hitting the boards or you're hitting another player. Uh, unfortunately, you know there's still things that can't be really measured, like the grappling, the pushing along the boards when you're trying to fight for the puck. Anybody that's mm. played hockey, like Danny and myself, that is exhausting, and yet you've hardly moved at all. It's just you know, that's the way it is. So that's another step that has mm. to be taken into account, but. I mean, I'm retired now, but one of the things I feel badly about not having worked on more is actually measuring the energy cost of playing hockey with a portable oxygen uptake system that goes over your face. The company has recently produced um, a face mask that actually measures the oxygen right in the face mask, and now they're working on measuring the carbon dioxide that's emitted so that we can calculate what fuel is being used and so forth. But again you know it's difficult to do that with a, a face mask on for an entire period where you can't drink and so forth so but i believe that's mm. coming and there'll be other forms of wearable technology that are very popular as well so i i think all of these things are coming i'm not sure who will do them
0: but somebody well, danny might <laughs> right danny <laughs> yeah maybe danny will uh
1: i would love to yeah, yeah. I was going to say, I really do believe we're at like the forefront of another wave in sports Mm. science of, um, all this wearable technology is really taking like pro sports and even minor sports by storm, which I think is fantastic. Um, it's unlike anything we could do in the lab where you really can measure people in a real world or a field setting. But I do believe there's some cautions that need to be taken right now. We're in this phase where we have all this data, but we're still working on describing it and understanding what these numbers mean. So I think it's just important to have that perspective. There's so much else that goes into a sport, especially a team sport of the camaraderie and the respect between individuals, the coaching in hockey, something we like to call a hockey sense of just like knowing where the puck's going to be, knowing Mm -hmm. where your teammate is. So the wearable technology is a really good tool. Um, I think it's fantastic. And I'm really excited to see where it goes. But I do believe it's just one piece of the puzzle that we have to work with.
0: If you could go back in time and change one thing about your study, what would it be and why?
1: Ideally, if COVID hadn't hit, I would have liked us to replicate a real hockey game even more. So we had to make a lot of adjustments based on uh, public health protocols, like how many people could even be in the arena. And based on that, we had to downsize the game to three-on-three. And we also played what was called small-sided. So that replicates the setup of the entire hockey rink, but it was played on about a third of the hockey rink instead. So to have this be like most applicable to a real world situation, I think we already did a really good job, but having like full ice five on five would bump it to that next level. And I would like to replicate, um, the overtime period as well of having, we had the three regulation periods. I would like to bump that overtime period down to five minutes instead because that's what Mm. we see in the national hockey league. And then to something else would have been including more players. So we're rotating two lines and our shifts were regulated to be two minutes long. And uh, anybody who's played hockey will tell you that is like an eternity (laughs) to be on the ice, (laughs) even in the small area. That's a little better. It's a little more manageable. But in an ideal world, we would have included more players and then had these guys rotating like maybe every minute instead. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's the main changes I would make. Overall, though, I was pretty happy with how it all pulled together.
2: Yeah, and I would agree with that. And uh, I think that we're pretty fortunate because there's a few publications that have shown that in terms of skills and movements and things, you can replicate five-on-five hockey with three-on-three hockey quite closely. But I think Danielle has covered all the major things. So
0: nothing makes you want to come back out of retirement. <laughs> do another study.
2: <laughs> <laughs> oh, I don't think I can do that. <laughs> I can I can come back and watch, but I don't want to have to organize.
0: <laughs> so I have questions on social media. And our first question is in the lead up to a sports event, are there any diets or even specific foods or drinks you recommend avoiding? Alternatively, what do you recommend consuming?
2: Well, I could start with that. And assuming that we're talking about a uh, intermittent high-intensity sport, then I think the primary thing you're worried about is uh, carbohydrate. Um, typically, people don't eat a whole lot in the hour beforehand. And, you know, it wouldn't make sense to eat pure protein or fat in that last hour because fat takes quite a while to to um absorb into the body and you're not going to be using a lot of, this, of that as well. So I would, I would say, you know, make sure that uh, you have ha- had adequate carbohydrate in the days and hours leading up to the event and make sure that you're well hydrated.
0: And for our last question, is there a difference between changing your diet or nutrition intake to be more healthy compared to trying to be more athletic or muscle building focused? For example, if I eat more protein in my diet, but I'm not working a lot. Is that still healthy?
2: Well, that's, that's a difficult one. Um, I think if you stick to the recommendations that um, are out there where it's about 50% carbohydrate, 15 to 20% uh, protein, and then 30% fat, that is a fairly healthy diet. One of the biggest problems isn't so much about the constituents of the macronutrients, Mm. but how much you're eating, because let's face it in, North America in Canada, the biggest problem really is that we're eating too much for the low levels of physical activity that we are involved in. So many Canadians hardly do any physical activity. So not surprisingly, you need very little food. And uh, I read a pretty interesting articles saying that if you go back 100 or 120 mm-hmm. years, um, people ate just as much as we do now, but they worked physically much harder. So, you know, obesity really wasn't a common thing. Um, With respect to the diet for an athlete, um, you know, the first thing that has to happen for an athlete is they simply have to eat more because they're burning many more calories. And even for people that are trying to put on uh, muscle mass, the Western diet has a lot of protein in it. So typically we are eating more uh, protein than we normally would. And the recommendations for protein for an average person is 0.8 grams per kilogram body mass per day. Athletes need somewhere close to double that. But when you do a dietary record of an athlete eating a healthy diet, they're getting it because they're eating more food and with it comes more protein. So, but it's, Mm -hmm. it's an interesting thing. Like I have to deal with this quite a bit where people, you know, lately, the last few years, carbs are bad carbs are bad and before that it was fat was bad and it's really mm-hmm. hard to convince athletes who hear this all the time mm-hmm. that carbohydrates should be a major focus in their diet and i try to explain that carbs aren't really bad but the majority of us canadians who are not very physically active uh, active are you could argue are eating too many carbs are eating too much protein are eating too much fat because we're simply eating too much food because we're not we don't need mm-hmm. very much But trying to convince an athlete that, yes, you may have to consume 4,000 calories on a Mm -hmm. hard workout day, and therefore it's a lot of carbohydrate, a lot of protein, etc. So that's the biggest dichotomy I find between athletes and just normal people that are struggling not to eat too much because they're not doing any physical activity. And I always tell people, if you like to eat, Get on your bike, ride around, walk, (laughs) swim, you know, hike, whatever. Then you get to eat more, you know? So anyway, that's my my take on things.
0: Danny?
1: Yeah, and Lawrence uh, took about every point I had there (laughs) as he went on. So I agree with that of, uh, yeah, just being careful of the amount they eat, but recognizing that if you are an athlete, like you have to make adjustments, um, usually in the positive side of things. And also timing is important when you're talking about things such as protein where um, your body can only process and effectively use so much within an acute dose. So just doing some reading of how frequently you should do that. And usually the best advice would just be to have some protein in every meal um, and have it balanced between carbohydrate, fat and protein.
0: Do you have any final comments you want to make about your work or this study? And if there's only one thing you hope that our listeners take away from our chat, what do you hope it is?
1: I just want listeners to know that carbs are not the enemy. We rely on them. We need them. Carbs
0: are our friends. And
1: yeah, they're not bad for you. And they're especially important if you're an active individual. So that would be the main takeaway that I want people to have.
2: Yeah, and I would would agree with that and simply say that I think um, sports science is in a really great place. We have new technology, and I'm sure we'll get more new technology to really fine-tune trying to optimize the scenario for athletes who are interested in becoming the best they can be.
0: And I think on that note, that brings us to the end of today's podcast. A big thanks again to our guests, Dr. Lawrence Spreet and Danny Nyman for joining us today. Griffin Cast is brought to you by me, your host, Michael Lim, with editing assistance from Ian Smith. If you're hungry to learn about different science topics, please check out Scribe Research Highlights. That's Scribe, S-E-R-I-B-E, Research Highlights on the University of Guelph website at uoguelph.ca. Or you can follow us on social media at U of G CBS. Find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Music in the podcast comes from Uppy. There'll be details in the show notes. And until next time, please stay curious.